0: Good morning everyone, it's very nice to be with you this morning. I want to say a particular thanks to, to Brian for your welcome and also, uh, I know Annis isn't here but Olga is, uh, I, I was very pleased when Alice invited me to come so I would like my thanks to be passed on to him uh, for inviting me to come and share with you. It's lovely to be here, I was saying both to Brian and, and to Stephen earlier, uh, I'm asked to come and take different services in different places. But I've never come to a place where the service has been so well organized beforehand, uh, where I was able to send uh, my script and, and my PowerPoint uh, where folks were asked to read and, and, and to pray and, and to speak with the young people. It, it's lovely to come into a congregation that, that is so on top of things or at least to an outsider appears to be in so, on, so on top of things. Uh, But it is lovely to come and share with you this morning, and I want to commend, I didn't get your name or or, or reader from earlier, it wasn't on my sheet, but I I want to apologise for asking you to read a passage with such, so many difficult names in it, and I want to say thank you for reading it so well. Uh, I, I got into a wee bit of a panic this morning. I said, if I'm asked to read this, I'm going to stumble over these words. So I got up that wee bit earlier and I practiced it again, but it was all in, I didn't need to do that. You read that brilliantly, so thank you for that very much. I want to put up three pictures on the screen of film directors. Clint Eastwood, Alfred Hitchcock, Ridley Scott, Clint Eastwood is now 86 years old, having been a very famous actor himself. Over the past number of years, he has become renowned as a director. He won two Oscars for directing the films Unforgiven and Million Dollar Baby. And for many of the films he has been involved in, he wrote, directed, starred in, and even wrote the music for some of them. Alfred Hitchcock is a very famous director. He made many many films including The Birds and Psycho and I'm sure lots of others that you've probably seen. He directed them and famously he appeared in most of them very very briefly. Maybe walking past the camera going to get onto a train. Maybe making a phone call in a telephone box. You Remember those things a long time ago we used to have telephone boxes? He would, the camera would just pan past him as he was making a phone call in that telephone box. Ridley Scott, he has directed many films. For me, the most famous is Gladiator, but he's also directed Alien, Blade Runner and, and others. But to my knowledge, He has never appeared in any of them. Although like all the other directors, his name appears in the credits and he's recognized as the central driving force and the director of the film, as the name would suggest. Three different directors, different involvements, different titles in the credits. When we see their films, we see what's going on, but we know that they're involved differently. If the book of Esther was a film, there would be no doubt that God was its writer and director. But in it, he's treated in a unique way. He doesn't appear in it as its star. He doesn't appear in it even in passing. And he doesn't even, in a sense, appear in it in the credits. Because while it's a book in the Bible, and the Bible is a book about God written by God, he isn't mentioned in it at all. Not even once in the whole book. It's natural for us to ask why this is so. It might be tempting to wonder if he really is involved in it at all. Is it not just a good story with colourful characters, but really nothing more than a collection of random or chance happenings? Where is God in it all if he never gets a mention in it? Is he like a footballer playing in a match who never gets a touch of the ball throughout the whole game? The answer is that he's right there in it all. He's writing. He's directing. The events don't take place in a perfect world. There's plenty of sin in the book of Esther. Some things that happen in it are strange to say the least. Some things in it are there that we certainly wouldn't expect to be there in a book of the Bible. Some things happen that we wouldn't recommend, that we wouldn't want to happen to us or our family. And at times people in the book have to make very difficult decisions that they would prefer not to have to make. There are some things in it that God wouldn't promote or encourage us to do. But in it all, there's no doubt that he is there. He's in charge. He's writing and he's directing. Everything is under his control. When you think about it, is this not what life is like for us? as well your life the life of your family and the others who are close to you the life perhaps of your church is this not really what life is like for us all life is not all plain sailing we don't live our lives in a perfect world where we are able to do exactly what we would want to or to do everything that we believe God would like us to do. Life is not as clear-cut as that. It's not black and white. There are things that happen to us that we wish didn't. Other things that we know are happening that we just aren't sure about. I have to make decisions about my life, about my family, about my work and the church that I'm involved in, that I simply wish I didn't have to make. Sometimes I'm not sure whether I'm doing the right thing or not. I pray about it, seek God's guidance and his word about it, ask him and others about it. And when I step forward to make that decision or take that action, I hope and trust that what I'm doing is right. But often I simply can't be sure. And often my prayer is something like this. Lord, I trust this is the right way. I trust this is your way. If not, forgive me. Correct me. Don't allow my mistake to mess up your way of doing things in my life or in my family or in my work or in my church. Life is not clear black and white. It's not cut and dried. We don't live in a perfect world. If you feel your life is different to mine, can I say to you, you're very blessed. But having said all that, God is still the director of life for you and for me. We might not see his hand In it all at all times. Although graciously he often does allow us to see his hand at work and he encourages us by it. But just because we don't live in a perfect world it doesn't mean that the God who is perfect isn't at work in it. At work in the world and in your life and in mine actually in control of all of life, the writer, the director. And we need to realize that and to give him his place in our lives as our Lord, as our master. That we're not just recognizing that he's in control of everything, but we're saying, Lord, I'm under your control and I'm going to submit to you. You will be my Lord and my master because he really is Lord of all of life. And if we want to live in the right relationship to life and to God, then that is the only way we can relate to him properly, by submitting to him as our God. What we see in Esther helps us to do that, because while he isn't front and center in this book, He's so clearly at work behind the scenes, ordering and directing it that we can praise him for it as he brings what seems to be unrelated things together. And we realize that he's been planning all along the outcome that he brings about in keeping with his will as he reveals it plainly in the rest of the Bible. I'd encourage you when you have the opportunity to read through the book of Esther. It's only 10 chapters. Some of the chapters are very short. You don't have to read all the names out loud. So don't worry about getting the names right or wrong. And apart from anything else, it's a ripping good story. But it's a story where we see God's hand all the way through it. So if you have half an hour or 40 minutes sometime, take, use that time to read through it from start to finish. And I've no doubt the Lord would bless you through it. We read chapter one earlier. I've given it the title, Who Rules? It starts by telling us that it all happens during the reign of King Xerxes, probably the most powerful man in the world at that time. He was ruler over the kingdom of Babylon, a kingdom that stretched from India right across to Ethiopia. This is the third year of his reign. And he's giving a lavish banquet that lasts for 180 days, six months. It seems that the guests didn't stay right through that period. They came and went, officials from different parts of his kingdom, being wined and dined. So while the party lasts for six months, different people come and go as the time passes. He's doing it to show off to display his vast wealth and splendor and the glory of his majesty. It says that in verse 4, to impress the nobles of the empire so that they will see how grand he is because soon he wants to go to war with Greece and he wants to show them how great he is so as they will back him in his war against the Greeks. After the 180-day party is over, what do you do when a party that lasts for six months is over? Well, obviously, if you're King Xerxes, you have another party. Immediately afterwards, he has a party that lasts just a week this time for all of the people in the capital city, Susa, held in the garden of the palace. The extravagance of it is described in verses 6 to 8. The wine flows freely. It's not just like happy hour in the bar. It's not just someone buying a drink for all the guests. This was seven full days of free food and drink for everyone in the city. Rich and poor alike. You can imagine the state that many of them are in by the end of it. And we're told that by the last day, the king himself was properly drunk. His wife... Queen Vashti, she had been having another party for the women, this time inside the palace, and he sends for her, commands that she comes wearing her royal crown. She's beautiful, and he wants wants her to appear before his guests so that they can admire her for just how beautiful she is. His wife, a trophy wife, if ever there was one, but she refuses, which sends the king into a terrible rage. He's the most powerful man in the world. He's just made a point of showing the people of his kingdom that for six months and then the people of his city that for seven days. Nothing was too expensive. He can say and do what he wants is the message that he's putting across to them. But this great king who can say and do what he wants can't get his wife to come in and stand in front of his guests so they can admire her beauty and say what a great man he, has, he is to have such a beautiful wife. So his pride is hurt, his male pride is hurt, and he has to do something about it. What does he do? Well, if ever a molehill was made into a mountain, this is it. It becomes almost a farce he calls for his advisors one of them says this is terrible she hasn't just insulted you O king she's insulted all the nobles of the kingdom if you don't take serious action he says to the king all the women in the country will get ideas above their station none of them will do what their husbands will tell them and then where will we be now, his advice is absurd. I hope you're getting that point. It's not meant to be taken seriously by us or by any readers of the scriptures. But he goes on. You have to issue a law that Queen Vashti is deposed. She's never again to enter your presence and then get someone else's queen, someone who's better than she is. And along with that, say in the law that every man is to be master in his own house. The whole thing is ridiculous. But this is the whole point of what's going on from God's point of view and the message for us from the chapter. Here's this king, the richest most powerful man in the world, who's just thrown the biggest party ever to show how rich and powerful he is. Everyone looks up to him. He can make laws saying whatever he wants and they can't be broken. But what sort of a man is he really? What's the best that the world has to offer? What's he really like? Well, surely when we read it like this, only an idiot would listen to advice like this. This great man got drunk, got carried away, made a fool of himself. In the later chapters, we see the consequences, the chain of events that he's starting here, right through his kingdom. But at the same time, in all of the mess, in all of the absurdity, the pride and the foolishness, God is at work to make happen actually what he wants in this messy situation. Because what we see in the next chapter is that the new queen who they get is Esther, who's a Jew, one of God's people, and God is eventually going to use her to save his people, the Jews. Even now, he's preparing her to be his instrument in his plan of salvation. And when we ask the question, who rules, the straightforward, how it seems, answer from what we see here is King Xerxes. He's the man in the big picture, with all the splendor and finery and power. That's the answer the people then would have given. But does he really rule? And if he does, is this really the best the world has to offer? If it is, the world's in trouble. But Xerxes doesn't rule. He might be the one that the camera is following round, but behind the scenes not even mentioned in the credits at this point god is directing things he is controlling what happens even though xerxes and the rest of the people never see him and many of them have no idea that he exists this might seem strange to us We might ask the question, why doesn't God come out of the background and show us what he's really like, what he's doing, why he's doing it this way? We might be thinking that, but is what we see here not very often how God works, even through the Lord Jesus himself? Is that not what Paul gets at in 1 Corinthians chapter 1? The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved it is the power of God. Since in the wisdom of God the world in its wisdom did not know him. God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand miraculous signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles, but to those whom God has called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God (laughs) is wiser than man's wisdom and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. God's power was seen in the cross where Jesus paid for our sins, but to the world it looked both foolish and weak. The son of God, God the son, killed on a cross like that surely people were saying God has lost the plot if he allows his son to be killed like that they just couldn't make sense of it but he was there in the midst of it he was working in the midst of it with almighty power to save with supreme wisdom As God became a man and as a man sacrificed himself to God for the sins of men, you and I. And in our lives each day, with our decisions, with our hopes, with our trust, in the mixture of our lives, the good days, and the bad days, the days when we feel we're up and the days when we're down, with disappointments and sadness, with illness and death for others and ourselves, he is at work in power and wisdom. The Lord Jesus is leading his people. He is speaking, he is comforting, blessing, saving, keeping taking to heaven, much of it quietly, unseen and unknown by the world, which is still taken up with riches and power, just as it was in Esther's time. This is true in our lives, but it's also true in our land. Some of us may be tempted to think, What on earth is going on politically in this country? Others of us here will remember back to the times of terrorism in this country, to the murders and the maimings, to the bereavements and the injuries, the fear and the intimidation. And we will be praying, Lord, please don't let this country slip back into that. This is something to say to our lives and to our land, but also at the level of the world, where political power seems to have shifted so much in these past 12 months. When we have Brexit, when we have a new president in the United States to be inaugurated very soon, where we have An uncertain future in the relationship between that country and Russia and China. And all of these things are swirling about in this mixed up and messy world. But the truth is, when we ask the question, who rules? Whether it's in our lives or in our land or our world, the answer is always the same God does. He rules always and He rules forever. We can be sure He rules, above all, because the cross and the empty tomb have happened and because the Lord Jesus will return in very visible power and authority to judge the world, but also because of what we see here in the book of Esther. It teaches us that we don't need to be carried away by the glitz and the glamour of worldly riches and power, any displays of power or claims that it has, we don't need to be swayed by that. Instead, we can trust God and we can be sure and be assured that He is at work. And in our lives, in our families, in our land, And in our world, when we ask the question, who rules? The answer is simple. It's found in his word. He rules. He rules always. He rules forever. And he calls us to trust him and to follow him as such. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we come before you this morning to bow in your presence because you are God. You are God of the whole world, God of all things, God of time and eternity. And as your creatures, made by you, we submit to you, we worship you, we give you your place. You have revealed yourself to us in what you have made. But more than that, you have revealed yourself to us in Jesus. When we see him, we see you. We see one who is holy, one who is pure, one who is perfect and just and right. But also we see one who is a God of love full of grace and mercy, even to sinners such as us. And we confess our need of your mercy and grace. Give us grace today to trust you more. And as we look at our lives, at our land and our world, at times, Lord, we confess we have questions We are not sure whether things are going the way we feel they should. Forgive us for that when we put ourselves in your place. Remind us that you are God and that your people right down through the generations encountered situations that they were confused and uncertain about. But in your way and in your time, You were working out your will, your perfect will, your good and pleasing will. And that will was to call and keep them, to bless them and to build your kingdom and your church, and ultimately to bring glory to yourself. Help us to trust you for this in our lives, in our land, and in our world, and to rest in you, the God who rules, in all. Amen.